0: Mother Earth is psychedelic. Her body is covered with psychoactive, sacred medicine. Can psychedelics help us become more conscious and loving parents, partners, lovers, and leaders? Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, the Psychedelic Mom, a mother and entrepreneur partnering with Mother Earth's sacred plant medicines to heal, awaken, and learn to live in alignment to my truth. Psychedelic literally means soul revealing. What reveals the soul to oneself is psychedelic. I invite you to join me in deep conversations with leaders, healers, seekers, and other parents. I will share my journey, the wisdom, practices, medicines, and mistakes that have changed my life and personal stories of others on this wild path. We are the medicine needed to birth the more beautiful world we know is possible. Welcome, welcome. How are you today, Stuart?
1: Super lovely. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom podcast. I'm so happy to have you here and uh, thrilled that you took this time today to talk
1: about your work. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's really nice to talk about my stuff. (laughs)
0: Well, I was interested in your work. We have a mutual friend who tapped me into you and your work. And for those of you listening out there, Stuart is a student of alchemy and then teaches others the process of using prayer to alchemize their lives. Is that kind of what you're doing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I like to say student, teacher, teacher, student. So I'm always learning, and then I'm teaching, and then I'm learning more. I'm learning from my students and I'm teaching them and they're teaching me and everything just keeps on going back and forth like that. But yeah, my one of the things I work with to help people create a new operating system is using prayer, I guess my own definition of it, to help people transmute and to navigate reality, day-to-day reality, essentially, yeah.
0: Interesting. So on the Psychedelic Mom podcast, I'm exploring earth medicines and psychedelics as medicines and tools that can help us have a deeper connection to our soul and also to be tools for alchemy but i'm also looking at life from the lens of psychedelic means soul revealing and anything in life can truly reveal the truth of who we are but i also like to look at the aspects of our life that can be psychoclyptic soul concealing so as we tap into this conversation today i might be asking you questions about how your life has unfolded and the aspects of your life that may have been truly uh, psychedelic in some areas that were psychocliptic. So I'm curious in what you're doing right now, this work with prayer and alchemy, how did you get into this? And what is your process?
1: Well, essentially, actually, it all started from doing ayahuasca for the first time about 15 years ago. So before I started working with plant medicines I was just an artist in New York City a counterculture artist kind of living a very debaucherous lifestyle as you do in New York City downtown as an artist and uh really had you know was kind of in a dark place with it all but was didn't really know what to do with my life and it didn't even I think the reason why I even got into that in the first place is because I wanted to be more free I didn't want to have a job I didn't want to have constrictions and bosses and I never felt like that was my road, you know. So I was always looking for something that could help me like be more sovereign in my life, you know? And when I was introduced to ayahuasca, and actually, you know, I had done psychedelics before many times. I've done mushrooms, I've done acid, but I had never done it in a ceremonial type setting before. So when I experienced the ceremony, I saw something that was, that just was pure and raw and clear and like something you couldn't buy your way into and something that you couldn't, your dad couldn't give it to you. You know, it's like something that you had to earn in a way that was very deep. And I understood that right away, even though I had no context for it, I was pretty much an atheist and had no connection to any of it at all. But that was very clear to me. So I immediately just stopped everything out what I was doing and went into deep study with plants essentially ayahuasca, but also peyote. And I I went down a lot of different roads.
0: So I want to peel back some of the layers of that. But first, maybe what we'll do is we'll talk about your work now, and then we'll trace back how your past kind of works into the process that you use today. So we were talking before we began this word, even prayer. I think a lot of us on the psychedelic medicine path come from faith traditions and kind of spiritual traditions that sometimes even the words become triggering because there were aspects of those traditions that felt untrue. So I'm curious about prayer and that you teach prayer and that you teach people the alchemy of prayer. Talk about a little bit about the word prayer and how you look at this process of praying
1: like I said, I was telling you earlier, which I'll say again, was like, if I would have thought that I'd be teaching prayer in my life back about 15, 20 years ago, I probably would have been laying on the floor laughing for for (laughs) hours, you know, and making more and more jokes about it. So yes, it's very unusual, but that's the cosmic giggle. That's how it works. You never know where you're going to end up. So how I came to working so deeply with prayer was really based in the idea that I had worked with many human teachers on my path of learning about plants and learning about spirituality. And I noticed that working with human teachers was very limited, that you really couldn't get to the meat of things because they had their own soul's mission. I mean, this is something I'm more recognized now, but back then I could just recognize that there was only so much they could teach me. And I knew that in order for me to really connect to spirit, You know, this thing that they talked about that I had no idea what it was. Everyone was talking about it and you'd see these shamans praying to it and they'd make it like the spirits are their best friends and they have all these different ways of praying and doing these things. And I'd just be like, I just don't feel any of that. I don't know what that is. But they're telling me, just stick with me and don't worry, I'll hold you in your practice through my knowing of spirit. And that just kind of didn't really work for me. And I realized that the only way I was going to be able to learn about what it meant to connect to spirit, to work with, you know, the spirits and the elements and the plants and connect to God was to really go out there and find my way there. So what was your original faith tradition? I didn't have one. I mean, my family is comes from a Jewish background, but my parents weren't religious. You know, they were just New York atheists.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you coming into this as an atheist, and then you have this experience with ayahuasca in the midst of this New York life. And was it ayahuasca that really kind of showed you for the first
1: time the experience of spirit? Thinking back to that first ceremony, because I'll never forget it, I just honestly was watching this shaman kind of like dimensionally shift through the space singing these Icaros. And I was like, what is that I want in? I didn't really even know why. It was like I was home in this place that I had never felt before. Like everything about it felt like so familiar that I felt like I was done that before or that I was doing that. Like, you know, as an artist in New York, I was this very counterculture troublemaker artist who was always putting on these very magical experiences for people that were quite shamanic in nature now that I look back on them. Of course, I was coming at them from an egoic, debaucherous way that was creating a lot more problems for myself than needed. But looking back, they were quite magical.
0: Interesting. So this debauchery that was happening in New York prior to ayahuasca, these shows that you were putting on, what was your life like then? Because it sounds like it's radically different today.
1: I mean, you know, the 90s. (laughs) The 90s happened. (laughs) You know, we all lived the 90s differently. How did you live the 90s? I had a friend who was actually in Warhol's factory. His name was Ronnie Controne. He was a good friend of mine. He died a few years back, but uh, He was Warhol's assistant, and he told me, if you remembered the 70s, you didn't have a good time. That's how I feel about the 90s. It was a very debaucherous time, especially in Manhattan downtown. There was a lot of heavy drug use. I partaked in all of it. Gangster culture, hip hop culture, grunge, everything was very dystopian in nature. It was very like, like right now, like in drug use, is kind of like, oh, that's bad for you. You know, back then it was kind of like celebrated in a very unusual way. Everyone was doing it.
0: I know prayer has like a vibration and I know you speak a lot about vibration. If you spoke to the vibration of that time of your life. How would you describe it? It was
1: definitely heavy, but not without its beautiful teachings. Like, I think it was Terrence McKenna that said, A shaman will go to the depths of hell. And if he can get himself out of it, then that's how he becomes a shaman. And I understand what he meant by that, you know, because I went to some very dark places back then. And to get myself out took a very long time. There's even remnants of it still to this day that. Carry in my vibration that I once they come up, I just purge more of them. I just take a look at them a little bit deeper, you know, because it's just like a spiral going up. So every time you hit that area again, you can go deeper with the healing. Everything that happened to me during that time was totally necessary for me to be doing what I'm doing right now. If I didn't know the depths of that world, like I got to experience it, I don't think I'd understand what I'm doing right now as well.
0: So, what was the depths? of The Shadow, what was the, like, how dark did it get?
1: Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, heroin, cocaine, hanging out with gangsters, the darkest of characters. The funny thing is, is like, I liked hanging out with like, kind of like street gangster type people more than like the celebrity culture, which I was invited into. I felt that world a lot more creepy, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I felt a lot more connected to like people that were like robbing the system. I related to that more. I think I was just always very counterculture. And there was something about the celebrity culture that was too much of a buy-in as an artist Every time I started getting kind of popular in what I was doing, you know, I'd always feel like there was like this pull, these money people come around and then they want you to do things their way. And and usually I would self-destruct about that time and then have to rebuild. So I went through many levels of like self-destructing, possible successful careers in different areas of the art world. And it was a trying time.
0: So you mentioned heroin. I mean, heroin is a really... I shouldn't say anything because I don't know anything about it, but I I know that it's a hard drug and that it can be hard to get away from the grips of heroin.
1: That's the biggest problem with it. Beyond that, it's quite amazing. It has its value, you know? And what value did it have for you? Well, it was interesting. The reason why I got into it was not necessarily because I just... It actually was a very conscious decision. So I had building like sets and doing a lot of very like... Physical artwork, building things. And I had broken my knee when I was younger. So, of course, they got me, you know, they started giving me painkillers. It's the old story, really. That's essentially how I got into it, you know. And then I got to the point where I was getting them black market. You know, there was no thinking about fixing the problem. There was like talk of operations, but I'd never felt comfortable getting operations like that. There was something that always withdrew me from that idea. So the painkillers seemed like a good idea, and I did like getting high, so that worked for me. So then it got to the point where the painkillers were getting really expensive, and so then my friend, who was this very smart, amazing artist, really good guy, you know, seemed to have his act together, brought over some heroin one day. He goes, "Yeah, just this is a ten dollars bag. It'll take care of your whole day." And I was like, "Yeah, but it's heroin." <laughs> so I decided I was like, "Well." I always said I was going to do heroin one day. I definitely wanted to try it out. You know what I mean? So I'm like, why don't, uh, maybe now's the time. So it was like, this is the time Stuart does heroin. So there was a very conscious decision behind it. And I had it kind of under control for a year or two. And then one day I woke up at five in the morning and I was shaking. And I found myself like in the cold outside my drug dealer's apartment, waiting for him to wake up. And then that's where my heart dropped into my stomach. And I went, "Uh uh-oh. It kind of like snuck up on you. It's like all good. Everything's flowing. I mean, during those times, I did make some incredible art. It kind of gives you like this feeling like nothing matters. You don't really have like the same kind of insecurities about things. Mm-hmm. You just in this like kind of warm hug bubble and nothing kind of bothers you.
0: And then what is it like when that hug bubble bursts?
1: What is that feeling? It feels like your soul just got stolen. Ooh. Yeah. Out of your body, sort of. You just know that you've just become enslaved by it.
0: So how long did you stay in that phase of enslavement or in that moment at your drug dealer's house where you like, oh, I can't do this?
1: It was a back and forth for a couple of years. But it, just around that time, actually, I think it was about after that moment. I still stayed with it. But after that moment, that's when I my first ayahuasca ceremony was like around the corner. Perfect timing. It was just lined up. And then I was doing, I probably was doing heroin right before the ceremony. This ayahuasca thing was coming at me from a lot of different directions. I was friends with this guy, Daniel Pinchback, who wrote a lot of books on it. I don't know if you know who he is. Mm -hmm. He wrote like, Mm -hmm. yeah. So he was hanging around one of my art projects and we were like, became friends. And he decided to put together this whole ceremony of like all these rock star kids and celebrity kids in my space. And he's like, do you want to do it? And I'm like, ah, no, I'm not into the hippie thing. That's what I felt like it was, you know? But then the more and more I thought about it, I had nothing to do that night. There was a lot of talk of ayahuasca coming up to it. And I actually started, the funny thing is is the actor Dan Fogler had stopped by my place. He wanted to make this movie called Don Peyote, which I ended up producing with him, which was about ayahuasca and peyote. And like awakening. Whoa. And so like all these different synchronicities. And this is
0: prior to
1: you. Yes, right. Like like two weeks before. Yeah. So like that was another reason I'm like, well, if I'm going to make a movie about this, maybe I should know what it is. You know what I mean? There was like that kind of an idea.
0: There was nothing to do. And someone had just asked you to work on an ayahuasca film. So it was kind of like, you know what, maybe I'll try this. (laughs) And I'm on heroin. And this is not typically how people come into an ayahuasca ceremony. But this is my way.
1: (laughs) There was no real talk of like, oh, you have to get clean before ayahuasca. Like there was no.
0: No preparation, no integration.
1: You know, it's not like what it is now, like ayahuasca everywhere. You know, it's exactly. like they weren't retreat centers. They were just like these guys coming up to the city with their leaves and a bottle. And that's what was happening, you know? Whoa. Yeah. So that was a real sliding glass moment for you. Yeah. That's when everything changed. And what happened was, is that the medicine seduced me. That's what I always will say. Ayahuasca seduced me. Like she showed me exactly what it was that I really should be connecting to. A lot of this wasn't even mental. There was a depth of felt sense that was so deep and so it was like home in a way that I had never experienced before. There was just no denying it. In that ceremony, I said, this is what I should be doing. Whatever this is, I want it. I want to do this. And then two weeks later, the building that I had this huge business in that was about to get financed burnt to the ground Whoa! and I lost everything. Whoa. it was like this business that was about to get financed by a billionaire. Everything was going amazing. Did you see Kali in your ceremony? (laughs) There was no Kali energy. It was all like seduction, seduction, amazing God consciousness, like feelings of like wholeness, beauty. That was living a pretty dark life. So like to like experience all that. It was like it's how the medicine works, like showed me the other side.
0: And could you feel the difference? I mean, there you are taking heroin and feeling obviously heroin feels good people wouldn't do it if it didn't right so you're feeling that the warm hug of heroin what was the difference with that and ayahuasca that was like i want this i want into this you hinted on like how heroin felt like dark and those times felt gray and low vibration what were the, some of the senses within the body, the deep knowing that you got from ayahuasca? What was the difference really? Wholeness, life, love, connection to all things. Ineffable. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, the standard stuff. But like it was enough for me to be like, like announced to the universe, like I want to quit everything I'm doing and I want to do this. You know, and it was very strong feeling in the ceremony of that, too. It was like, you know, the smell of the Palo Santo, like everything was like home, 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 home. Mm -hmm. And just the, the songs, the sounds, the whole thing. There was this feeling like I have been here before. I had never felt home anywhere. I always felt like an outsider. That ceremony space was where I felt the most complete and the most nurtured, I guess, by the presence around me that I think I've ever experienced in my life.
0: Well, it had to have been profound. And I know a lot of times the words that get used for spirit and earth medicines and psychedelics and the experiences and the journeys that we have in them sound cliche after a while. And at the same time, the truth of what you're talking about, like here you are feeling for the first time in your life, a place of home that you've never felt like that's can't really put into words. But I actually, as I sit here can literally feel in my body that sense of
1: homeness and how you must have felt in that place. And of course, it's just the beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was, it was very awakening. Mm-hmm. But I was pretty deep on the other side. So this is just the beginning of a long adventure. So once that building that the business was called Collective Harder would have became a success and I would have got financed, my life would have been I don't know what my life would be right now. It'd be completely different. I could be dead. I, I don't know what it would be, but there was definitely some sort of spiritual um what's the word I'm looking for? Intervention intervention maybe. is exactly the word I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> my life has usually been like that. You know, it's been like these huge ups and downs. I seem to create a lot of that in my life, you know, in the past. That's changed a lot now because of the way I'm working differently, but That was just one of many situations in my life where it was just like this huge, like atomic explosion.
0: So what was the process of coming clean from heroin and starting to walk this path of more wholeness for
1: you? So the building burnt down. I lost everything. That was bad. And I still had the bad drug habit. I was still fighting it, but I wasn't really doing too much work on it. I had heard that there were like these guys in Brooklyn, these like just, you know, these Puerto Rican or Taino guys, street guys that were doing ayahuasca ceremonies. So I connected with one of them actually on the set of Don Peyote. So I was still working on the movie at this time. And we're going to, so I meet, oh my God. I meet this guy, oh Salvador, who, of course, he's on the set and he's like, whoa, did anyone do ayahuasca here? And then no one had done it but me. We're making this movie about ayahuasca. You know, it's a funny, it's a comedy. So this guy's a serious guy. And he's like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. So they send him to me like I'm the pro, but I had only done it once. And he's like, you did it? I'm like, oh, yeah, I did ayahuasca. And then I was like, do you know where we can do more? (laughs) He's like, yes. So then he started inviting me to his like ceremonies in little tiny apartments in Brooklyn, packed in people, Brooklyn, Bronx kids, Harlem kids, indigenous, rediscovering their indigenous ways, essentially. I was probably one of like two or three only white guys there. You know, now you go to an ayahuasca ceremony; it's pretty much all white people. But back then it wasn't like that. It was very fringe still. So I started drinking with them. And then like within a year, I was still doing heroin. Wow. And the medicine was still seducing me. So the medicine was still like seducing me, still showing me all this great stuff. And I felt like I was like winning the war. Like I knew, I, I, at this point, I knew that both things were not going to work out. But for some reason, they were. Both things were working. I was feeling better, but I was also not having to quit my habit completely. The habit was lessened. Essentially, what happened in this time also, I got this opportunity to move into the Chelsea Hotel mm-hmm. when it was just closing. A friend of mine had a room for rent and it was like basically empty. So when I was living in there, I'm like, okay, I'm living in the Chelsea Hotel. I should do heroin and do artwork, you know, because that's what you do in the Chelsea hotel. For <laughs> so, so that was, that, that kind of like stopped my healing a little bit. And then what happened was within a year or so of doing these things, the medicine finally was like, no more. And the hammer came down and it was brutal. It was like, basically like either quit heroin or quit me. You can't do both anymore. Like it's, it's over. And so I put down the ayahuasca first. I'm going to come back. I promise. It was also just like, you know, I knew what it was going to take to quit the other thing. And, you know, the ayahuasca was a little bit easier. And then I had a friend who asked me to put one together. And my ego was like, oh, I know the shaman. So, you know, I got to put it together for this cool guy that I know. In that ceremony, I was in, like deep detox. It was so painful. This is when I kind of got really deep into conspiracy theories. So I was reading about how like the CIA was flying in drugs and like the Freemasons were the temples on the top of the buildings. And like, I got very into like all the symbology and all these things walking around New York, looking at the symbology on on the architecture. And so I was in this apartment and it was like had a view of the whole skyline. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing all the temples on top of the buildings, the golden temples. And then I was thinking about how The government flies in the drugs, gets us hooked on it, and then puts us in jail when they catch us on it. And I was like, I always thought that I was like this outsider rebel person, but then I realized I was a slave in the ceremony. And then from that point, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I was just a part of the system. I was the the rebel guy within the archetype of all the characters within the culture who just basically copied the artwork.
0: Yeah, it feels like suddenly I'm picturing you Feeling this art world rebel life that you've been living, and suddenly this realization: like, oh, wait, I'm kind of a pawn in a bigger matrix that I'm enslaved in now.
1: And it was uh, it was very humbling I mean, in that ceremony. Like, I was just like, oh, I am so full of shit. Essentially, is <laughs> what I realized in that ceremony. Without any way other way to explain it, but that's exactly what I felt like. And then after that summer, I went back and then I just, that was it. I, I went cold turkey after that and just did it. Wow. Yeah. Was it hard? It wasn't pleasant. It's like the physical part's like two months mm-hmm. and just being uncomfortable 24 hours a day. And did you have someone with you
0: kind of holding space for your recovery from that? No. So you were kind of alone,
1: hiding. yeah. yeah. I knew that I had to kind of do it myself. Right. You know, like I knew that this was the kind of thing, like I could have gone like, oh, I could have gone the methadone. I could have got the other thing. I got the. I'm like, but I knew, I knew that there was only one way out. There, there were these moments in my life where I kind of knew things like the only way is this way. Like there's no plan B. That was one of them.
0: It's funny sometimes. I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes it's like that realization, like I knew. Yeah. I knew, (laughs) but I pretended I didn't. But now looking back, I actually kind of knew you got clean from heroin physically. Yes. Where were you psychologically, physiologically, like where was the rest of your system and energy and vibration at that point?
1: this is an interesting point because, you know, I learned so much about addiction through this process. And I also learned how to heal it from the deep level of the vibration of it. But what happened with heroin was the physical part was the easy part. Then there's like grayness that you're living in. The reason why people go back to it is because of that. Mm You know, what I realized is when they quit, then they're just living in life and they're like, there's no point in living in life in this gray, like kind of soulless, like it feels like your soul after your body, kind of, you're just like, everything is slow and gray.
0: Would you think that all addiction is like that once people move away from addiction or is addiction really just lack of connection and it's separation from spirit? And that's basically what's going on when we're addicted to anything.
1: This is a good segue into one of the programs I'm doing, which is using tobacco to clear The vibration of addiction out of the body. So what I realized, because after I had gotten clean, 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 got to the point where I wasn't even drinking coffee anymore, you know, I was so clean and I was, you know, serving medicine. I'm like this super clean, clear, meditating every day. But yet, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I would still have like, as I'm talking to you, this moment where I'd be like, I want some organic blueberries, like a whole pack of them. You know what I mean? Like, because the addiction just jumps from one thing to the other. I didn't have the coffee anymore. I didn't have like the, the bad sugar anymore because I quit all those things. So I just kept on quitting all the things that I was like, you know, doing in an addictive way, you know, like, you know, had to have my coffee every day. Huh? You know, like, like you can feel it. It's like this grabby energy, you know? So it's like this grabbiness. Like i always feel like, mm, you know, so it, it kind of takes you out of presence. It's also what it does is it disconnects you from infinite abundance. So, If you're always coming from lack and you're always in this grabby, I need something on the outside, you're not living in infinite abundance. You're not connected to that higher vibration. So you're in this lack and lower vibration. This is a big part of it too. The other thing with addiction that I found is that it's not from the substances. The substances are only the thing that you're trying to fill a cup from the outside in. You were right about what you said. It's separation from God. It's separation from the oneness. So you're in separation. You think you need something outside yourself to satisfy this emptiness inside yourself when actually you can fill the cup from within. From the unconscious eating or the unconscious consumption of whatever you're consuming, you're continually putting this vibration into your body of this unconsciousness. So the food matter holds that vibration, or the the substance matter holds that vibration and stays in your body and continues the pattern, the loop of needingness. So in order to really release yourself, and that's why, you know, you ever see people in AA, I mean, AA is great in the idea that they do talk about the separation from God thing, but they also say you have a disease. And most people in AA just walk around all the time thinking that they're sick and they're white knuckling it. That's no way to live.
0: I do think that probably in some ways, earth medicines help people in addiction. You know, I can think of the ways that for me, for example, I didn't have any substance addictions, but I can look back and look at, like you said, organic blueberries. (laughs) I was addicted to this obscenely healthy, rigid workout, obsessive way of being. And so from the outside, I don't know that it would have looked like an addiction, but God forbid I didn't get my workout and my organic food in and this whole circular thinking. Because if anybody had pointed it out, and actually, I think at one point my daughter did, and, you know, I then saw a similar issue trending toward my kids, you know, my kids then. One of my daughters had a particular, you know, an issue with eating. And so now I'm, I'm passing this along. And so then that was the realization like, whoa, this isn't healthy. And it simultaneously, like you, hit at a time where I was entering the psychedelic space and the earth medicine space. And I look back now and I had the gift of working with Iboga, which I wasn't taking a boga because I had addiction. I had no idea. I was new to the space. And it wasn't like I took a boga and that morning I woke up and said, oh, I have addictive ways of being. It almost just shifted me, shifted me, shifted me. And then retrospectively, I looked back and was like, that was really problematic like I was seeking outside myself all the time. And I was someone who really believed I was truly living like kind of a spiritual path. I was on a path of spirituality and my own deep meditations. And I think many aspects of my life were deeply spiritual. And so I, I am curious, like, I wonder what would have been the thing that would have shifted me? Like you had the fire, you had ayahuasca. I'm not sure that I'd be here today without plant medicine on this issue. I don't even know if I would have seen it.
1: It's interesting, you know, because I've actually seen the medicine become a part of the addiction, right? I agree. As well. So like, you know, there's hoppe. You know what Hape is, of course, right? The tobacco snuff. I do. So yes. because they put the idea of medicine on it, or people always say, like, I know lots of people that say, oh, cannabis is my medicine. And even like, I even hear people going to like ceremonies in a way that was kind of like, it becomes their social life and it's how they get high, you know? So there, there is like, the addiction can be pulled into the medicine world very easily. And I've seen it and it happened to me. It happened to me too. Like I was doing hopping obsessively, abusing tobacco in a way that was not the way to work with tobacco. I can tell you that right now for sure. And so this was, um, you know, so I've seen that happen, too. I think the problem is, is that, you know, we may have been born, our souls may have signed up to go through the process of dealing with addiction. On some level, my feeling is around addiction. It's a soul quest. There's people like Russell Brand, who talks about addiction and says it's like from trauma, you know, um, child abuse of some sort and stuff. And I mean, besides the fact that I was an outsider with kids, my family was Okay. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't don't know if it was just a trauma. I don't know if trauma is the only the answer. I mean, I think trauma can definitely start. I think that could be a a way of, you know, people who want to escape their traumas. But I also think there may be this soul's mission to learn about how to connect to the oneness and get out of addiction. You know what I mean? So I think that that's another possible way.
0: Yeah, I think so. And what you were talking about, too, sometimes it is the pain is the way. Mm -hmm. I think whenever we're in addiction not always though because we can fool ourselves but I think deep deep down there's this knowing it's not coming from a place of wholeness.
1: Yeah, it's it's exactly that, right? It's you're not in wholeness. You're not like if you're connected, if you you know when people say this is I learned this through this process. So the idea about connected to oneness. If you it's like one of those language things again like what does that actually mean? Like Sure, you can sort of mentally understand it, but from a deeper felt sense, do you actually know what it means to be connected to the oneness or to God? You know, the language is a little bit, it's its, it's too mental.
0: And it can sound flaky. It's like, okay, you're connected to the oneness. Like-
1: <laughs> exactly. What does it even mean? <laughs> I, I, it's just one of those uh, things. What does it know? even mean? Yeah. I mean, the language is so funny. The language <laughs> with all the spiritual stuff is just so wrong on so many levels. Most of it are scientific terms, like we're raising our vibration. That's a scientific term. It's not really supposed to be used in the connotation of the way we're using it from like a spiritual perspective, although it kind of works. But I think the actual definition is very much different You know, than the way we use it. So let's
0: shift there. How would you describe, instead of using vibration, what is spirit to you? And how do you teach people to actually experience spirit? How do you teach people to come to their essence within themselves to experience something greater than themselves, whatever the, the thousand names that someone might call God,
1: like how do you teach that? It's interesting. I just figured out how to talk about that like last week, and now I can share it. But well, perfect time. This question I could not have answered a week ago. <laughs> you know, how that works. But what I've figured out, what it is based in my own studies, is to connect to spirit or to God or to the language of that is not mental. It's in the body. It's a felt sense. So I'll kind of give you an example of what I mean. Uh, You know, there was this time where I was during COVID where things were really intense and I was feeling like I wasn't liking what was going on. And I I wanted to know that I was in the right place, you know, because we were all kind of like, what's going on? And I was sitting with my fire and I was praying with the fire about like, be, is New York a good place to be right now? Like, I don't know if being upstate New York is a good place to be. It seems like, you know, everyone's partying down in Tulum and Miami and and it's like dystopian nightmare here. Like, I, you know, I'm not really feeling like it. I'm not feeling so much a dystopian nightmare, you know, like I'm not in that field of it, but I'm living in a place where it's all around me, which I kind of liked because it, I felt like I was necessary here. I felt like I was bringing a light to the, you know, shining a light on something that was very dark, but I was going through a moment with it and I was sitting with the fire. And then all of a sudden I had this feeling like the fire just got me, like I'm taken care of, like the guidance system is here. I pray with that fire every day. I give it offerings. Like there was just this cemented feeling in my gut that I was like, oh, I don't even have to think about this question anymore. Right? That was how the answer was received through my body feeling that that answer. Afterwards, I was able to make a mental construct of the feeling. So I was like, okay, what's that feeling? That feeling feels like this altar, this fire that I pray with has got my back and will be a guidance system for me if I ever need to make a move quick and protect my family. And there was just this knowing and feeling from that experience. That just completely alleviated any questions I had.
0: It's interesting you say that. I was with my sister recently and brother and, you know, a lot of conversations about what's going on in the world. They're always asking me, what do you think is going to happen? As if I have like a magic ball and this intuition of what's coming and how are you preparing? What are you doing? And how how should I prepare? And I'm like, well, prepare for what? Because you never know actually what's coming And what I was trying to describe is basically what you said. I said, I think the greatest thing you could possibly do is tap in because your guidance system will tell you with everything. What if something wonderful is around the corner from you? How do you tap into that and follow it? Yeah. What if something does happen in the world? Where are you going to go? You're going to go where you're guided. But if you're not tapped into that guidance system, you are going to be depending on others and then you're not in full sovereignty. So I agree with you in this sense and that what you're talking about is the felt sense of that guidance system. It's a language
1: that you need to learn in order to understand the guidance. It's all built in synchronicities and you know, this is a perfect segue to get into the prayer work because this is exactly what I'm teaching people through the prayer work. So the prayer work, what I realized is like, yes, we were talking about how the word prayer, like, ah, uh, you know? And, you know, the reason why I work with the word prayer instead of intention or manifest or, you know, those other more new agey type terminologies, the quantum, you know, like Joe Dispenza style language or is because of the vibration of the word and how the person who prays the prayer and the prayer are spelt the same way. So usually when there's a meta situation that shows me that there's a lot of water running through the, there's a lot of energy in that because it just keeps on creating.
0: It almost seems like the circular infinity field. Mm -hmm. That's, that's beautiful. I actually never thought of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to work like that, you know? So the prayer, the person who prays is the prayer. So, like, how this program works is like what I discovered was, and actually, I didn't even know that this was teachable. Mm-hmm. Essentially, how I got to this was a little quick background, not to get so deep into it. It's like I had been in deep study with teachers, you know, in the medicine. I was down in Peru, I was down in Colombia. I had a lot of other types of teachers that were teaching me about shamanism. And the thing was, is I was getting I was getting information from the plants that was very different than anyone else was getting. I was getting more of like creational visuals and like I was able to create hallucinations and there was like a very different texture that was happening for me and everyone else I spoke to was getting very different stuff. So I talked to some of these teachers about it or some of these you know, people that I was working with. And they mostly put it down. They're like, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not what we're doing here. This is not what this is. But it was very powerful the way the plants were showing it to me. So that was like my first kind of realization that my mission, my reason why my soul has manifested here was to learn something different than what theirs were. And then I started realizing that The only way really to truly to learn this stuff was to go out on my own and to really make my own connections. So, you know, navigating the infinite and working with these medicines in in this way can be, you know, considered dangerous or um, can go a little bit nuts. You know, so I had to figure out a way of creating a container for myself so that I could navigate my way towards the information that I'm supposed to be working with.
0: And at the time, were you mostly working with ayahuasca or different medicines? Yeah, I
1: was mostly working with ayahuasca, which also was part of the thing because ayahuasca does have its, although the ayahuasca was showing me certain aspects of things, it is not used for, I, I think ayahuasca is essentially really used for the purposes of healing. Uh, where I always wanted to work in a much more expensive, higher, you know, like I look at ayahuasca, like from serving it as I was a plumber, you know, I was like doing the deep digging helping people push out all the darkness up to the surface, purging it out. It felt a little bit like plumbing, very like earth-based. It's not extremely higher chakra type of medicine. You know, there's other medicines that are way more higher vibrational and other plants to work with. Blue lotus being one of those. Not necessarily even psychedelic plants can help you obtain deep esoteric wisdom through prayer with them. So, you know, I started realizing I wanted to connect more with ayahuasca, but ayahuasca did seem like it had like a kind of a cap or something. And I was cooking my own medicine and I was working with medicine that was not connected to lineage. So I was doing my own thing, which also I got the white neo shaman guy branding and, you know, had people telling me this and that, like not supposed to do this, not supposed to do that. But I I just didn't listen because I didn't I learned one thing from this one teacher, his name was Shiva. He said, whatever you do, stay behind the medicine. So what I would always have done is just listen. So if I was doing something that I shouldn't be doing, the medicine always let me know. It was just like, you get the proverbial, like spiritual tap on the shoulder and you should stop what you're doing. And did you ever get that tap with ayahuasca? Oh, yes. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She keeps you in line if you know how to listen to her, but it's, it's not out of like, it's never out of like anger. It's, it's nurturing. It's just like, you know, she can be sharp with you, but it's not, it's, it's always loving. I don't know if you've ever been in a ceremony or anything where you've had some voice speak to you in a nasty way. Have that ever happened to you? Like something yelling at you, like some kind of spirit. I've had these experiences like that. When I realize is that it's trickery. If anything speaks to you from not the place of love, you don't listen to it. So all my relationships are built with love. So with the plants, with the elements, everything has to be built in love. And, and that's how you can create these relationships where by feeling the energy, if it's a place of love, it's a place of friendship, brotherhood, sisterhood, family, in this beautiful communication, it's coming from the right place. If the information is coming to you in this kind of aggressive way, it could be something that you shouldn't be talking to.
0: At some point, did you put ayahuasca down and not serve it anymore? Several times.
1: Yes. After the first time I started serving, essentially what happened was I got this vision that I was going to end up in Hawaii and I was going to meet somebody. And I was going to drink ayahuasca every day for two months and then I was going to cook it and serve it. And literally that's what happened. Like I've traveled around the world. I ended up in Hawaii. I met this guy the second day I was there who was a cook. Wow. He gave me two bottles of medicine. I drank it every day. On Christmas, we cooked it. I had all these bottles. and Then people started calling me about ceremonies. Oh, I heard you're into the ayahuasca thing. You want to come here? And then I started traveling around. I stayed away from like New York and California and Austin. I was like Texas, Mississippi, deep South Louisiana. You know, I went to places like that. I was actually giving talks in like Louisiana to like church people, going to churches and talking about ayahuasca with them. What were you
0: seeing serving medicine? Like, what was the experience of serving other people medicine and holding the container for, you know, besides being a plumber, I'm sure there were other aspects of it. What were you witnessing?
1: Well, here's here's an interesting point. I mean, that's a really, that's a long, <laughs> that could probably be a long question. And I'm sure I've had a really good answer for that. But one thing I did learn is that once I started learning how to trust my prayers I no longer was in my head during the ceremonies. So, in the beginning, I was not as talented as I should have been. I've never had a problem. Everything always went super well. But basically what would happen is is like I would always be worrying if people were having a good time or if they were getting the healing that they came from. And so I was like working really hard. When I started deepening into my study of my prayer and trusting my prayers, I would pray over the medicine before I started and then basically I knew the prayer was going to come true. So I would never have to think again. You know, what I would be able to do is I, you know, to answer that question a little bit more was you can definitely tap into people and help them move energy. It's very magical stuff happens. You know what I mean? Everything's connected. When I first started, I was singing all the time. Then I stopped. And then the second round after I had quit for a little while, I was just basically meditating and praying the whole time and would have a musician playing music. But then there would just be moments where I would just pick up my leaves and shake them and like someone would come up to me afterwards and go, oh my God, that changed my life. And, you know, like, so things would just come through me and I just do them. So the more and more I did, the more and more I was able to get out of the way, which I think is the best answer I can give to that.
0: So let's say I said to you, you know, Stuart, I don't really know how to pray what would you say to somebody like prayers don't really work and I don't really pray. What would you say? How would you start to help them understand what prayer actually is?
1: Essentially. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. Most people, you know, it's like our, our divinity has been stolen from us. You know, culture has downgraded us to regular humans, but we are fractals of the whole. So we are that, you know, we are that which we want to pray for, for help. I always say co-creator, creator. creator." So uh, we're in co-creation with the divine, but we are also simultaneously the creator. So we're both perceptions at the same time, and we can oscillate from back and forth so we don't get pigeonholed into the idea that we're in separation. We are in separation, but we're also the oneness in separation, having the experience of separation. We're actually really not even in separation. We're actually just having the experience of that. So to answer your question, what I do with people is that want to learn how to pray is it's about study. So I say, look, you have to study how your prayers work. Okay. Everything I realized about how to really get from point A to point B in your spiritual growth or to initiate yourself is through study, focusing in on one concept and studying how it works so that you can get the tool so you can use it again. So for prayer, for instance, what I would do is, usually what I would do is I take them on a guidance prayer, right? So I want guidance for clarity. I want to be clear. I'm so unclear. I want some clarity in my life, right? It's like, would be a, let's say a prayer, This is actually a guy I had recently. So I'm like, okay, great. So all you got to do is you don't have to do some long-winded thing where you're like, oh, father, this, that, you know, it's not like a religious prayer. It's like a mantra. I like some guidance to my clarity so I can be clear of my choices that I'm making right now. you know, It's that simple. So I usually tell them the first one's important. So like what you do is you put your foot down. It's like you're putting your wizard's hat on and you're standing on the proverbial cliffside with your wizard stick and you're like, I want guidance to my clarity, right? So then once you make that announcement, it's on. It's happening. The prayer has begun. Even if you never prayed it again, it's going to happen. But what I do is I tell people to revisit their prayers every day, several times a day. It's good to do a prayer over your food. Why? Because you eat three times a day and it's good to pray over your food and to do a prayer with your water and do a prayer. You know, so in other words, you're saying it all the time. So you're, keep, you're staying connected to the idea. And then what I tell them to do is just observe, just observe. So what's going to happen is the codex of the illusion reality I call it an illusion reality because it's an illusion and your reality, will start speaking to you in terms of the prayer in ways you won't even quite maybe understand. But every time we do a session and I say, just tell me about your week, 100% of the time something comes up that has exactly something to do with their prayer. I would say probably 60% of the time they don't see it, which is why I'm there for them. And the other 40%, they're like, oh my God, I figured it out. I'm like, great. Makes my job easier, you know? So once I start teaching them how to read that codex, that's what I call it. it, is the codex. It's like, I guess if you were looking at the matrix matrix codes, you know, you like learn how to read what's coming at you. And then eventually what will happen is through this process is mm. what, what I call it alchemy of practice. The alchemy is like a transmutation. So usually what will happen is you'll go through some kind of edgy moment or something will happen where you'll be pushed to your limit around this clarity or whatever it is. And then the next session, they'll bust through it because they'll stay with the prayer. And usually that's the other thing. People stop praying when there's resistance. So right? I just tell them if there's any resistance, pray through it. And then on the other side of that is the receiving. The prayer is the prayer. So once they come in, then usually they'll get on the phone with them and they'll be saying things like, I'm so clear right now. I totally understand. I totally get it. And I was like, what was your prayer again? And he's like, Oh my God, like you didn't even put it together. Like a lot of times they don't put it together right away. But from that experience, they learn how to put it together. So now what's happening is they're developing an operating system, a new operating system. So you're not stuck in your head. So every time you hit like a crossroads, you can create a guidance. You don't have to sit there and go, oh, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? You get into the trust. And another thing that keeps on happening is this kind of prayer that I'm teaching isn't like necessarily manifestational prayer although you can use it for that but it's more about creating a guidance system and also ways of initiating yourself into deeper wisdom so what usually will happen for people with this process that i teach them is each one prayer will take you to the next prayer so once they get clear then all of a sudden there'll be a new thing that comes from the clarity And then they can create a new prayer from that prayer. So what's happening here is you're creating these containers to work in. So each time you do a prayer, it's a container. So you're operating within the context of the container. And then once you fill the container to its limit, then you receive the prayer, then you can create a new container. And this way, it keeps you focused. It keeps you disciplined. You're being guided. That's the guidance system.
0: And so first, in some ways, you're probably teaching people to center like even feel spirit pray from maybe a different presence. And then you're creating a container of that presence. Is that part of it too? Well,
1: that's like part two. Part two. If they want to keep on moving forward. This one, this is like, you almost in a weird way, don't even have to believe in God to do this part of it. It's more about like, you know, I can say, look, like if you don't believe in God or something, just connect to your higher self. You have to believe in something that's, Brand, you know, or just essentially it works either way. You know, you don't have to like be so in devotion to get an answer if you ask for it.
0: So I'm curious, are there different ways? We talked about the prayer of clarity.
1: Are there different ways to work with prayer? Yes. There's different ways to work with prayer. That's why I like another reason why I like prayer, right? Because if you say manifest or intention, which first of all it feels like your intention they're very limited right so with prayer you can manifest you can create an intention you can initiate yourself into deep esoteric wisdom and you can create devotional prayers to connect to deities elements plants god so the devotional prayer is what we can talk about next which is how to connect deeply and create the relationships between the spirits of like Pachamama, Earth, Earth-based spirits, and also divine frequencies. Like you might want to connect to the Egyptian, like Osiris and Isis type frequencies. These are like six-dimensional frequencies. That's the way I see them. And you can connect to them as well through devotional prayer. But we can talk about the elements and plants first, if you like. There was a couple of times in my life where I had a fire burning for like three, four months straight. I'm extreme about how I operate, obviously. This is not... (laughs) But... It, the way I look at it is before I can actually teach anything, I have to go to a certain, t- I mean, like it's infinite too. Like you can go infinitely deep with any of these teachings. Mm-hmm. I can keep on learning deeper levels of this. It's never going to end. What I know now is probably still just the tip of the iceberg, you know, but enough that I can feel it and then actually turn it into mental words to speak about it and actually imprint it with people. So through my knowing, I teach from my practice. I don't teach from a book I read or an idea or something I learned from somebody. I teach from my practices, you know, so there's like a vibrational aspect to my teaching.
0: I was just thinking, it's interesting because as Westerners, many people think of it as like, what do you mean the elements? And even going back to, I'm thinking of this guy that I like to read about a long time ago, Victor Schauberger, who was, they call him the water wizard. He was so brilliant. They call him kind of the Nikola Tesla of water. I oh, he is, yeah. Not many people know about him, but he really spoke about how he just sat and listened. The water told him. And we're, as Westerners, so far away from being connected to the elements. So it sounds strange, but really what you're talking about is all of our primordial or our indigenous roots that we've gotten away from. And that is listening and being in relationship with these elements. And so it sounds like for you, you had a fire every day for months and were in deep relationship with that fire. What would you say that medicine taught you, that fire taught you?
1: To do something like that, like it just changes you. You know what I mean? It's the devotion. It's the devotional act it's that will bring you there. And you'll have many, many, many days of, of no magic and frustration before you actually get to the surrender of the, of the magic of it. The way I understand it is through deep sense of felt sense gratitude and respect. Is how you create the relationships between plants, elements, actually, well, anything really, I guess, you know, but to really, to create the relationship of the spirit as a guidance system, it takes a devotional act of like deep felt gratitude is how it, how it turns on. So, I mean, I would be on my, you know, just down on my floor in front of that fire. And because I really felt that way too, it wasn't like I was trying to get something from it. It was just this feeling like I knew that this is what I needed to be doing. I remember in the beginning of COVID, I was serving ayahuasca. And this is actually the first time I've actually gotten English words from the fire. I served a ceremony because people wanted to do it. And I said, yes. And it was extremely dark. It was a two-night weekend retreat. And it was so dark. The first night that I was like, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't have been doing this. It was the first one I decided to do. And the second night I was like, can I even do a second night? And I went out to the fire because I always have a fire burning. And I went out to the fire and I gave it some tobacco. And I was like, help. (laughs) I was like, give me some guidance, help me. And the fire said to me, nature rewards courage with strength in English. Nature rewards courage with strength. Those words tapped into my mind. And so I did the second night. And after that, I literally like lost the level of fear that like I I purged fear from it. So the fire gave me that guidance. Things would happen like, you know, from doing those long stints with fire, like you would literally sit in front. I would have times where I'd sit in front of the fire and the entire fire would just turn blue. Like, hello, hello. Like it was that reactive. Or like I'd be doing a deep prayer and like literally the log would just pop right out of the fire. Fire is great because it's super reactive. And I'm an Aries, so fire is my thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and for years and years of being a firekeeper in ceremonies and also working with the fire, one day the fire is like, okay, we're good. Time for you to work with water. So I've been in deep work with the water now, like every day, praying with water. All my clients, I'm giving this water prayer to. So I'm building a field of water prayers. Well, it's
0: funny because when I first spoke to you about coming on the show, you had talked about water and I'm a Pisces, so I'm all water. And um, I had a client that night teaching spiritual direction, just as a spiritual teacher with a particular client. And, you know, I had not meditated for a while, but I had been in a practice meditating on the Tao Te Ching for years. And the Tao Te Ching has so many verses that are about being like water. And so after I talked to you, I thought, you know what, maybe I'll bring in this meditation of the Tao Te Ching and water. <laughs> and just from talking to you, I ended up bringing in a water meditation and um, we're working with water right now.
1: Amazing. Great.
0: Yeah. It's really beautiful. Incredibly profound. I'd love you to share
1: the, the particular
0: meditation that you taught me just with the glass of water because um,
1: I shared that. So, you know, once again, like, you know, the connection is through the felt sense. The magic happens from the body, Mm -hmm. right? So the teaching is just to hold a glass of water to your heart in the morning. First thing before you touch your phone, first thing you do is the way I like Mm -hmm. to teach it because it's like you're fresh. You're still like, you know, waking up. You're a little bit like disoriented. It's a good place to be when you're in a prayer, you know, and then you just feel the gratitude from your heart field going into the water, feeling it. So you can be saying thank you to the water. Thank you to myself. I usually like to do both those things. But it's really what you want to do is like tap into that feeling. And this is also teaching embodiment, which most Westerners really need to learn about. It's a rough road, us with our heads these days. (laughs) So once you feel that going in, right? So what's happening here is that you're putting the vibration of gratitude into the water and then you're drinking the water, right? The quantum field of water is extremely connective as soon as that water hits your waters, your body, it picks up all the vibration from the water you put in. So that's once again, the meta again.
0: I was just thinking that actually, as you said that, yes, so the prayer becomes, is the prayer and the drinker becomes the water.
1: Yes, exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like I'm, I started teaching people that usually people that are just like, you know, their life, it's really hard, you know, like I want to be doing better or they never can make enough money or, you know, they're just it's a lot of lack mentality. And once they do that for a week, it's like, it literally cures them. It's like, it's so fast. So then I was realizing like, wow, I just give this away to everybody and then create a field with that. <laughs> you know? And I just started seeing that that's what was happening. So thank you for sharing the water prayer with your client.
0: Water has always been such an important part of my life. And I think water is kind of one of the first medicines, right? It's where
1: life emerges from. The way I understand is the whole entire universe is in the quantum particle of water.
0: And it's interesting because for myself, and it sounds like a similar path, and I don't know why, but for me, it's been fire and water. I haven't really necessarily yet done the other elements yet. And I was with a medicine woman one day and she gave me a name. And I was like, oh, okay. She said, it's where water meets fire. And so I, I don't understand that name yet, but-
1: Where water meets fire. Yeah.
0: Pray into understanding what that means.
1: I mean, right off the bat, it's the masculine and the feminine. In balance, I guess, but I would see it that way.
0: Which I think in a lot of ways, is what we all come to learn how to do is balance those two parts, to be in truth with those two parts.
1: You know, it's funny, I haven't even gotten to earth or or air yet. I've been just like years and years with the water and the fire. I haven't even figured out how I would practice with the air. And You know, I guess breathing or with the air, but it just hasn't happened. The fire and and the water just seems so, for right now, just keep on working with them.
0: What are the prayers that you're currently holding for
1: yourself, the world? It's an interesting question. You know, I mean, I look at it because I also know that those of us that are awake are kind of like impatient sometimes we want other people to awaken and to just come into their hearts. And, you know, that's what we're hoping for. But we also have to realize that everyone's here to learn in their own way. This is how the, the way I got the download on, on how this works is you can make prayers of male beings awaken to the heart mm-hmm. in an easy way. So we don't have to go deeper and deeper into the chaos that's something that I do. May all beings wake into the heart, you know, because it's, that's where we have to go right now. We can't fix the mind energy with the mind energy. It's not going to work. And then also, may we have infinite sovereign abundance. You know, may all beings have infinite sovereign abundance. You know, there's a lot of lack mentality being perpetrated out there by the culture. And we don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. You know, our minds create a lot. So if you have a lot of people believing that there's lack, then there's going to be more lack.
0: Would you say that your day is a prayer? Your life is a prayer besides this idea of saying a prayer that we live the prayer?
1: Yeah, it's, it's the meta, right? It's like getting back to the prayer talk again. It's like once you understand how your prayers work, once you know that they work, you've studied and you've practiced and you, okay, it's works so and you start to believe it. And then, you've not, then you go from belief to knowing. So it's like thinking, believing, knowing when it drops into the body and then it gets crystallized in the body. So once you're in that trust, once you know your prayers work and trust your prayers work, then you can trust yourself. Then you can live in your truth. Then you can be more authentic. Then you know, once you pray, you are the prayer. So like you can literally say the prayer and it's there. These days, I don't even bother praying for something that I want in the future. I'm just super present with it. It's all there. So I'm just mm-hmm. in the moment with it all. I'm not like trying to, I mean, yes, I have these ideas. I'm trying to create big things and, you know, there is these, but I'm, I already know that they're there. I'm just patiently, you know, holding space for them to arrive in the material world. So yeah, it's just living the prayer. What would you call tobacco? A medicine? It's definitely a medicine, 100%, but it's more than that. Do you think tobacco has been one of your greatest teachers? Absolutely. Profound teacher, yeah. So
0: you have ayahuasca as your main medicine, switch to tobacco. You had fire as your main
1: element, and then now you're on water, which is kind of fascinating. And the tobacco has a lot to do with the addiction stuff, exactly, and how it cures addiction. He cures the, it knocks out the vibration of addiction, that thing that always holds us.
0: We were talking earlier about the medicine path and addiction, and I know you were serving ayahuasca while actually doing heroin, and then. You went through this recovery of heroin through medicine, and then we're working with tobacco. And I know you hinted at when we originally talked about how tobacco showed you in many ways, how to heal addiction. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, because I found that so profound, your relationship with tobacco, what tobacco taught you.
1: So tobacco is a really powerful teacher. Uh, I'm going to start this with an indigenous story that I heard recently, which was so like tobacco. So essentially how the story goes, and I'm not sure I'm getting it totally right, but there are all these master plants. Now, when we talk about master plants, you know what I'm talking about, like coca, rose, ayahuasca, you know, there's all these master plants, Babanzana, you know, like there's all these plants that are considered healing, powerful plants, right? So there all these plants are lined up, and God's going down the road to each plant and saying, So, what do you want to offer humanity as a healing? And each plant. Would give its answer. And at the very end of this line is tobacco. And so when God gets to tobacco, tobacco goes, What would you like to offer humanity and the world in healing? And he looks at all the other plants. He goes, Everything they're doing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, that's, <laughs> so that's, a, that's an indigenous story about tobacco. So amazing. I loved for many years smoking tobacco unconsciously. I've gone through so many different levels of working unconsciously with tobacco, getting clean, going back, getting clean, going back. And part of the reason why I kept on going back was because I knew that I had a relationship with this plant and I just didn't know how to have one in alignment. I just didn't know how to do it. I Mm -hmm. give up the smoking it, then I do too much of the hoppe, but I knew I always wanted to have tobacco, work with tobacco. So it was challenging because tobacco is interesting, right? Tobacco is like people would say it's addictive, but I actually feel like it's not that it's addictive, but what it does do is show you that you're an addict. So you always see smokers are like, oh, I got to quit smoking. There's like this whole thing with tobacco. It's like, oh, I I can't quit. I gotta quit. It's like, it shows you that you're an addict. That's what I feel like it does. I feel like it's not even really addictive because now I have a relationship with it. And it's not an addictive relationship. Do you still smoke tobacco? No. Well, no, we'll get to that. Let me get to that. That's uh, only when I'm using it to work on people medicinally, you know, to blow tobacco on them. Mm -hmm. But I'm not even supposed to do that without tobacco telling me that now. So we'll get to how this all came about. So basically, I went through this struggling and struggling and struggling. Finally, the way I was able to quit smoking tobacco was by growing it. I got some seeds and I growed it and I prayed with the plant and it helped me stop smoking it. That was an extremely profound experience of just growing and nurturing the plant and then being able to quit the smoking. Now, when I was serving a lot of ayahuasca, I would do hape. Hape is the tobacco snuff that helps you ground and it's very protective. And I just always liked the tobacco close to me. Sometimes I would smoke a pipe of much macho to clear the space, whatever. But I was also still using it, not in alignment. If you're using it daily or even like, you know, a couple of days a week, or if you're just like, whatever it is, if you're using tobacco in, in this way, you're not in alignment. I don't care what anyone says, it's impossible. And I would see it happen too. Like if there were times where I was like working with tobacco super unconsciously and using it very like addictively, the magic of my work. Clearing people with it or working with it, you know, from a medicine perspective, the magic was gone. Mm. But if I was doing it, if I was in alignment with it, it was so powerful. Mm -hmm. So, what happened was, I, because I was serving a lot of medicine, I started doing a lot of hape and I got deep into the hape again. And um, last year, what happened was I got this really, really beautiful hape. It was gifted to me from this really powerful shaman in Brazil and it was very special. And I did a hit of it and all of a sudden the tobacco just started talking to me mm-hmm. and the tobacco was like you're supposed to be a sacred med- uh, tobacco carrier you got to stop this this is not working for either one of us you know <laughs> we got to fix this problem this is what you have to do now one of the things i had started doing prior to this moment was drinking and purging on tobacco regularly i was working with this colombian shaman Taitolucho uh, from the inga tribe and he became a very good friend and He told me straight up, I don't know why he told me, he's like, you need to be drinking and purging on tobacco. That's how you're going to connect to tobacco. He didn't even know I was trying to connect to it. How are you drinking tobacco? You make a tobacco tea and then you drink it and then you purge. Mm -hmm. It's very uncomfortable.
0: (laughs) It sounds awful.
1: Very dangerous, very awful, very uncomfortable. Don't suggest it, but... I started doing it quite regularly. Now,
0: why dangerous?
1: It can be dangerous. You know, can, people can get super sick. I, I mean, why? I think it's just because tobacco is on the edge of medicine and poison all the time. It's a very edgy plant. You know, it can, you know, if you don't know what you're doing with it, tobacco kills people. Sort of the reason why I like it. It has this edginess to it that keeps you kind of like, you know, it's my personality. to to like working with something like that.
0: Interesting, because again, it has both. I'm just going back to the thing that you had said before, being in your apartment and seeing the buildings. Tobacco has also been something kind of captured by the society as far as like tobacco industry. It has this edgy feel. And yet at the same time, it's part of kind of enslavement. You were learning with tobacco suddenly how to be in right relationship. So now you're drinking it (laughs) and purging with it. (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the world of learning about tobacco
1: (laughs) so i started drinking it and purging on it and working with it like that and then i was still using it a little unconsciously with the hoppe and then finally one day the taita told me this colombian shaman he told me that in order to connect to the tobacco the channel of the tobacco so it speaks to you is through the purge so i was doing that, you know. It's a six-hour process. You, once you do it, you're just in pain for like another four or five hours, and you're on the toilet. It's a very, very painful experience. The whole thing.
0: And is it physically cleansing? Oh my
1: god, so good. When once it's over, you smell you, you smell different. <laughs> Wow! It purifies your mind. You have like no mind energy. It, it, like, did
0: he teach you how to do it? Like how to make the tea? How to go about this process? Yeah, I
1: mean, I kind of knew, but he did. He, I, like I did it with him. I got the gift of living with this guy in the jungle by myself. He's a very famous guy for like two months, so you know I got to see how he did things. And he was a real wizard, so I liked the way he operated. So I, mm-hmm. I liked his ceremony with it. So essentially, what it is is like you're just making like three pints of tea. And you're drinking three pints of tea. And as you're drinking it, you're purging and drinking. It's not a pleasant experience. When I got that message, all of a sudden the the tobacco sent to me. It was like in English. It was directions on how to get rid of this addictive vibration out of my body. Mm. And how it was taught to me in that moment was you have to do a purge. Then you have to meditate an hour a day, every day. In prayer with the tobacco, not smoking it, not doing anything with it, but you can't do have any tobacco products during this time. You just have to meditate an hour a day for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, you have to do another tobacco purge. Then you do a three-day water cleanse, like just water water fast, mm-hmm. and then do some like psychedelics just to see what happened, like to get the the connection. Wow, what an experience this was. This was like this experience was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. I never knew things worked this way before. So basically I did it. I did it right away. Like I started right away. I'm like, okay, I'm in. And before then I was not a big meditator. I would meditate maybe 20 minutes, you know, maybe a couple, three times a week, whatever. I was not very big into meditation. I had to meditate an hour a day, every day.
0: And were you eating at this time? Was there any direction on what else
1: would be going into your system? I can do anything else. Mm-hmm. The only thing I had to give up was the tobacco. Okay. I guess I could have given up other things that were affecting me, but I chose not to, and I was very glad that I didn't because it wasn't in the directions anyway. Mm-hmm. Because what I discovered is, I got through this process. You become hyper conscious aware of the addictions. Mm. I can see the gremlin going. I want more stuff. I want more. Then I started eating sugar, and I just it moved like the gremlin. That's what I call it, the addiction gremlin to the surface where you became hyper-conscious of it, of the unconscious consumption. Literally, it was like a creature, like this vibrational creature that was in me. And I got to sit in meditation and face the creature every day and have this like deep understanding and thanking the creature for being a great teacher, but I'm done with you kind of idea. Like not, you know, I, I didn't, I never feel like these kind of things are like to be cast away without some love. I mean, they definitely taught me something. So I had that experience and I did the whole thing. One day drinking, 40 days meditation, one day purge again, three day water fast, and then do a little ceremony with some psychedelic, whatever you, you, know, whatever you chose.
0: Okay. And what did you choose? I did some mushrooms. Okay. So deepest process you've ever had, you're looking at the addiction gremlin that lived within you. You're learning about this vibrational field of addiction. And then what happened?
1: Once I got through it all, I felt differently. After I did the three-day water fast, I didn't feel like... I needed anything. I felt this calming in my body that I hadn't felt in a long time. Because even though I've been super clean and I'm super disciplined with my practices and how I eat, and I mean, I've never been, I mean, you can't get cleaner than me. I mean, I eat all organic foods and I don't drink coffee, and I, you know. And I just felt finally for this one moment where I was like, I actually couldn't relax in my body. Like I wasn't, like I didn't have like any kind of pull. And I had not felt that in. I don't know. I can't remember the last time I, and I probably when I was a little kid, you know, I don't even know if I felt that when I was a little kid, I was probably high on sugar all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? So then I decided to do what they said. So I did some mushrooms and oh my God, this was the most incredible experience I ever had. Like the tobacco was just totally talking to me, telling me that I can take people through this process, showing me that now I have a channel to tobacco and that before I I work with tobacco in any way, I have to ask and that it will tell me who's right for purging, who's right to blow tobacco on, who's to serve a hot bay to, who to do that. Like it was telling, it was showing me. And then it showed me this, which I was blown away. Like you don't have to work with any of the plant material anymore. Now you can actually energetically work with tobacco. So I can do tobacco healings, energetically now. So I can ground people over the phone. I've done it before. Like I did it with my fiance during this little ceremony and she like was blown away. Like I, she totally felt it. Like it actually was, I got all these gifts from the tobacco that were extremely magical from the experience. So amazing. This is why devotional prayer is so powerful. And I've also gotten gifts like this from the water and from the fire. And like, this is how you really learn how, you know, all of a sudden you'll just be downloaded this information and you won't even know how.
0: Have you used tobacco to help others heal from
1: addiction? Well, right now I'm starting that program. I have like two people on it right now that are absolutely having the most powerful experiences. They're in the middle of the 40 days right now. So I'm putting together a group probably in March of like 10 people that I'm going to take through the process. So I'm going to do a retreat before and a retreat after, and then group phone calls every week, and then private phone calls with each person. So I'm doing, I'm putting together a whole program to take people through this process because- that's what tobacco asked me to do.
0: And are you when you say take people through this process, do you mean the actual drinking and purging yes. with tobacco? That's part of that part wow. too. So
1: what I how it'd be structured is everyone would come to a, a retreat, you know, get a, you know, get a place and everyone will purge and then We'll do, I'll do some teachings on how to work with this process and some other things we'll do, you know, do some healing work and, you know, there's, there's a bunch of other things, you know, each person will get individual help too, based on what their addiction is. You know, I mean, some people have like porn addiction. Some people have, it's not always about the tobacco, you know, and then they have to come back for another retreat at the end of the 40 days and then to purge them out again. And then depending on what the tobacco says per person, whether they should do some medicine or not, you know, maybe, and not do a lot. It's just like, you just need like a little bit, like a micro, you know, it's like a small amount. So it's not like, you know, doing some big medicine ceremony afterwards, you know.
0: Looking back at your heroin addiction, do you believe that this process could have helped with a drug like that?
1: Okay. The way I see it, like I said, this is new for me, is Mm -hmm. that I believe that this process is for people more like me. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense that they have been addicts on big drugs, Mm -hmm. but have gotten off them Mm -hmm. or have been off them for a long enough period of time. And they just... They just fighting it for too much, and they, you know, or, or they're just, you know, they're still feeling it, or they just have a coffee thing now, where they have like, and yeah, it's like affecting them because I can
0: think of a cousin right now. It's like she gave up alcohol, and she is smoking all the time, but there's this energy that you can feel. So you're talking about that. It's just like. Ah.
1: Yeah. And also what it does is it connects you to the oneness too. So the tobacco connects you back to the oneness where you're missing. There was this point uh, just during the process, I remember where I had this like etheric empty cup in my body. Like I felt this like emptiness and I had the felt sense to fill the cup from within, from my heart. Right. So that's what I did. So the tobacco was showing me how to like, you can just sit there and be cool and fill that empty cup. You don't have to go to the refrigerator to do it. You don't have to light up a cigarette to do it.
0: I mean, just how about that right there? Because I think so much of what we do as human beings is look for something outside of ourselves. And then for people that experience, and I think to some degree we all do, some trauma, Mm -hmm. I think deep down, deep down in the cellular levels maybe of each human being is this fear of being alone, of this fear of like aloneness. And here the medicine's telling you, showing you kind of what all the great teachers have said. It's within, it's within that you're there then with this empty cup being shown how to resource that cup. And yet it's probably also teaching you there's no such thing as empty. It's that paradox. It's like, fill the empty cup within that's never empty. Yeah, but basically. Yeah.
1: There is some also some other stuff that I feel like is very important to share that was shown to me at the end of this process. One was getting back to what you were talking about, the commercialization of tobacco. This probably goes for cannabis too. But it was showing me how because... Men have gotten into wrong relationship with tobacco is what's created all this um, hard stuff with masculinity. So because we're not in right relationship with our tobacco is the reason why masculinity is toxic, <laughs> essentially, Interesting is one of the things it was showing me.
0: Well, it's interesting. I'm thinking of the marble man, right? You're taking masculinity and a form of masculinity anyway, and you're putting it on the Cover of everything, and it's tobacco. That's fascinating, actually.
1: It's funny you brought that up because that was one of the images I saw was the the Marvel Man. And what did it show you from that? Well, what it was showing me was basically that, like exactly that, is that they created this false idea about what it meant to be masculine and how to work with tobacco. So it created this whole culture of disappropriating the tobacco in this like you know very twisted relationship. That ultimately has created some sort of issue with our consciousness because of this, this plant is so powerful. Mm-hmm. The other thing it showed me, which is really powerful about plants, and this plant in particular, plants are operate at certain vibrations, right? And they're these beings that are actually channels for divine frequencies. Mm-hmm. So tobacco is a channel. For the cosmic father frequency. So the primordial masculine frequency is what it channels. So what it brings to the planet. So it grounds that frequency into the earth plane. So if it's not in alignment and you're not in alignment with it, you're out of alignment with your masculinity. That's pretty unbelievable. It's pretty profound, right?
0: Just even the awareness that... Plants. And I think earlier in the conversation, when you originally were talking about even working with ayahuasca, what you started to realize is that you were working with human teachers, but they did not have the level of wisdom that plant teachers did. So you went directly to the plants. Go to the source. On your path. <laughs> and then the lineup of all these plants telling the source of life, God, what they wanted to bring to humanity. And it's so fascinating to think of the Marble Man and Tobacco and what this taught you about when we're not in right relationship
1: to plants. Spirits in general, to Pachamama, to the sacred. You know, being out of alignment with the sacred is really what we're talking about here.
0: And then we become out of alignment with each other. And we see each other as separate. And we end up with all of what we're seeing in the world. I'm curious about one thing, because I was in a... um, ceremony. I was doing a year-long intensive when I was training to serve medicine. And the medicine in particular was toad medicine, Bufo. Once a weekend, every month, I had to go with this group, same group, and learn about serving medicine. But it wasn't really just about serving medicine. It was everything. It was really your own deep work. (laughs) And so we had one ceremony. And it was a mushroom ceremony. And before the mushroom ceremony, I think there was tobacco that was part of the ceremony. And there was a woman in the space who was an indigenous woman. And after the ceremony, and the ceremony, to be honest, broke down in different ways because the, the container wasn't held as tightly as it should have been. And at the end, she talked about how during the ceremony, she heard from the tobacco spirit that it wasn't in right relationship because there was no honoring of the peoples that have been the keepers of tobacco for
1: i don't know forever and i'm curious of your thought about that i think right now we have a big issue with all the plants and all the medicines you know we're seeing it you know the legalization the commodification the how they're being treated you know like how they're being harvested. You know, there was a a friend of mine was telling me that she was talking to some indigenous woman and and this indigenous woman said that all the magical beings were leaving the forest because of this. And I, I actually, one of the reasons why I stopped serving Aya was because I was feeling this. I was feeling recently that the field was kind of muddied or something, or Disconnected. You know, I had quit for a while before COVID, then I picked it up again during COVID. And at the end of COVID, it's like everyone started serving again. It was just like everyone's ceremony, ceremony, ceremony. And just the whole thing just felt something about it didn't feel copacetic for me, you know? So I I felt like it was probably best to put it down. And that's when like tobacco kind of took over, (laughs) you know? And tobacco makes more sense now because I think we all need a little more grounding. And that's one of the what's one of the magics of that plant is grounding us into the earth plane better. You know
0: what is the relationship between plants and prayer?
1: I mean, that's how you create the relationship. Through the prayer is how using the word intention is like you know you know you do a ceremony right? You have an intention going into it, or you have a prayer going into it. They're very reactive to this. You ask, you receive. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a ethnogen, you know, like plant medicine ceremony, you have a prayer. If you're really focused on your prayer, you're going to get your answers. This guy I told you about before, who also gave me this piece of advice, which I always thought was amazing. He said, "It's not the quantity of the medicine; it's the quality of the prayer." I always thought that was very profound. Stay behind the medicine, and that were two of his top ones for me. They really have helped me.
0: I love that phrase: "Stay behind the medicine."
1: You know, it's like, don't get ahead of yourself. And the prayer, say that other one again. It's not the quantity of the medicine; it's the quality of the prayer. So, you know, I could take somebody on like a, a small dose of medicine. If they have a good prayer and they know what they're trying to achieve and they know what they want to get to, you don't have to do the deep dive. You don't have to, you know, have them flop around the floor, purging all over the place. You can just give them a small amount to help move the energy and work more precision with the medicine. This is the way I prefer to work these days. It's
0: interesting in some ways how our paths are similar and so different in working with clients, doing medicine for a few years and a lot of medicine, and then not doing medicine. And interesting even working with clients, you know, serving medicine. And what I'm even witnessing now is without medicine, I call it like taking someone in, just through bringing them having them close their eyes and going into the metaverse of their body, which is like the deep subconscious, which holds so much of their own wisdom. It's kind of fascinating how little medicine is actually needed. Now, granted, I think for some of the bigger things, major addiction or major traumas that are being that your protective parts have hidden for so long, you may need boga you may need the medicine to really kind of break through the layers there but once maybe there's the engagement in the medicine it really what you're saying is true it's it's not the dose we talk about like heroic doses if like that's going to be the healing it's not the um heroic dose that does the healing it is the intention it's the prayer and I also think it's who's holding the container mm-hmm. how that container is being held is so important. And like you, this hasn't been something that I've like read in a book. This has been my own deep journey of my own healing, listening, being in my own way, listening again. And the true listening of being in engagement with another human being, something is speaking through of where to lead me within their psyche. It's not me. It's not me knowing where to go. It's that thing
1: you were talking about. The, the, the channel. You've surrendered to the channel. It's the channel. You got out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. You learned how to get out of the way. It's, it's what you were saying to all, everything you were saying. I mean, look, we, we both have done a lot of hero doses, right? You've done a lot of hero doses of medicine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me to like say, oh, don't do hero doses now is kind of ridiculous considering how many I've done. But there is other ways now.
0: I think there's a part of me that knows without a doubt, there's no way I'd be here without it, to be honest, because I had a very constructed ego. And, you know, I don't want to be delusional. I probably still have infinite layers of my ego to let go of. But the parts of my ego that were so constructed would never have allowed me to see the things that I did need to see, that I did need to heal. There's no way I could have gotten there without psychedelics. I truly believe that. So what you said is true. Like, it's ridiculous for me to say to somebody, uh, you don't need a heroic dose. You don't need medicine. I think once you've used medicine, you need less. And that doesn't mean at some point I'm not going to need more because I'll be dealing with something that I don't even know yet that I may need the assistance of medicine with.
1: I feel like COVID was this dark night of the soul for the whole world where it pushed all the darkness up to the surface. So things are easy to move. So these experiences that you're having and I'm having of helping people move big energy lineage stuff, dig deep traumas very easily, is different now. We are in different times than when we started. When we started, things were a lot denser. Things were a lot more pushed down. Now everything's kind of more up to the surface. I think you're right. You can see it on the world stage, right? So there's like so much ridiculous corruption and darkness everywhere around us. But it was always there. We're just, it's just up to the surface now. It's no longer buried underneath. So that's happening within us as well. It's like as above, so below, as within, so without. So I feel like. Although I highly suggest that people should do hero's doses, if you just don't feel like you want to go down that path, doing the work that you're talking about, doing this prayer work, doing the other things, you know, because I've helped people do very deep trauma work with, with the prayer work. No medicine, you know, it's doable. There's many ways to get there.
0: Really interesting. I've been doing a lot more of the non-dual practices. They even feel different. All I can really talk about is that it's like, it's a sensing, it's a prayer, it's a relationship with that sacred. And you know, I noticed the other day, it's so interesting having you on today because it was like two days ago. And I was saying to my colleague, it's really interesting. I prayed differently, really differently the other day. And she said, What do you mean? And I said, I don't know. My prayer didn't come from like me, the separate self, Michaela, the this unique expression, not this self praying to that capital S self. It was almost the higher self, soul self, sacred self. Okay, I don't know if I can put this into words, but saying, hmm, what do I want to experience through this articulation of myself? And it was like a completely different kind of relationship to prayer. It was as if I knew the Michaela, the self Michaela was here. And I was very aware of this sacred self, non-dual self saying, hmm, let's collaborate here. What is it that we want to experience
1: through each other? That's amazing when you have those openings like that. so beautiful. So what I would say is you should definitely nurture that, you know, like nurture it, like hold on to it. Remember what that voice sounded like. Remember what it felt like because you want to be able to like nurture and, and bring that back in so you can have that as a guidance system. You can have that as a tool to work with as well. Yeah.
0: Amazing stuff, huh? Do you want to end with a prayer?
1: May all beings be at peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, on a serious note, we do this work, right? Because it's a prayer. We do it we're doing this work as a prayer. We're doing this work because it's our mission statement. We're we're here to help people awaken. We have to always just remain in our hearts when we do it and not get caught up in the in the head to fight the head and just to keep on, you know, you know, lifting the spirits of others and lifting the spirit of ourselves. And really, mostly what we have to do is keep our own spirits high, because that's really kind of what it takes. By doing that, we can lift the whole field. We're in a very beautiful time. and We're very lucky to be doing the work that we're doing. And I I just want to say thank you so much for this. You're awesome. Thank you. I really appreciated uh, this this time talking with you and hope to get to know you more.
0: Yeah, you too. I love what you're doing. I love the depths of what you're doing. What I really want to reflect to you, which I admire so much, is the time, the devotional time that you've actually put in. The really sitting with not only the elements, the tobacco, but yourself, just truly amazing. In this busy, busy world with everything else that takes us away from this deep work, it's really amazing the, the, the actual dedication that you have
1: had to the sacred thank you for that and and you know it's really interesting is this is definitely the first time i've ever shared it in this way i've been just in the deep study for years and kind of operating undercover with everything i was doing and you know i had this moment this feeling that it was time for me to come out and share and to teach and to help people connect because i was just seeing a lot of spinning happening and you know i feel like what we what we really want is you know the the spinning not to go around in a loop but to spiral up you know, you know? Exactly. So I, I really thank you for like, this was so, so meaningful for me to share and um, really, really so appreciate
0: it. Well, you have a wild story, really. <laughs> it's a beautiful story that I think so many people are going to connect with. So thank you for being here. I want to check back in with you and find out after you do your retreat, I'd love you to come back
1: and talk about what you witnessed. Oh, absolutely. For sure. I mean, right now, just with the two guys I have on it, it's so powerful. Like I can feel them. You know, you know, the Shipibo dietas, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard of like dietas, like with plants. And the, I have, yes. I'm getting the feeling it's kind of like that. It's kind of like taking someone on a dieta, holding someone on a dieta. Yeah, but in a different format and the way they do it.
0: So if somebody wanted to find you and uh, connect with you and work with you, how would they do that?
1: Uh, the alchemyofprayer.com is a good way, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a great way my
1: Instagram is, uh, at Stuart underscore alchemy of S T U A R T underscore alchemy of. Yeah.
0: And I'll put that in the show notes so everybody can find you.
1: Yeah. So thank you so much. Have a beautiful evening.
0: If you enjoyed today's show and want to help build a more beautiful, conscious and loving world, please share this content with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and I'd really appreciate you taking the time to write a review so that others can find these amazing conversations. And if you'd like to see a video version of the show, you can find me on YouTube. Feel free to reach out and connect with me at thepsychedelicmom.com or message me on Instagram at thepsychedelicmom. And remember, you are the medicine.